Go ahead, open your Bibles up. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Tomorrow is the great Hallmark holiday of St. Valentine's Day. St. Valentine's Day. I was trying to decide whether to open this one up with a Super Bowl reference or a Valentine's Day reference. I went Valentine's Day. I apologize. Tomorrow is the great Hallmark holiday of Valentine's Day, which in its form today has nothing to do or any resemblance whatsoever, except maybe a slight nod to the man who was St. Valentine. But I think it is worthwhile for us to study the lives of Christian men and women who have gone before us and the great feats of noble faith that they exerted while they were alive. Valentine was an Italian doctor who eventually became a, uh, a Christian and served within the church. And it was in a time of Roman history where he was living in Italy under an emperor named Emperor Claudius. Claudius had a new policy that he had made the law of the land. And the law of the land was that he needed more men for his military. He wanted to bolster his military efforts. And so what Claudius did is he outlawed marriage. Interesting policy, isn't it? He said, let's just outlaw marriage altogether. That way I can get the young men to stop them being distracted with women and recruit them into the military. And I can get the guys who are thinking about getting married, who are already in the military, to not get married so they can be more focused on their work. This is interesting. You know, when you're living in a nation like Italy in uh, that century when Valentine was, how does a Christian respond to a law like that? What does he do? Does he go with the flow? Does he say, hey, it's the law that Claudius has made, and so no more marriage, that's totally fine? That's not what Valentine did. Valentine weighed his decision carefully, prayed over it fervently, and then began marrying Christian men and women in secret, in underground rooms across Italy. Eventually, he was caught, and he was thrown into prison. When he was in prison, he made good friends with the prison guard. In fact, he began writing notes to the prison guard and to the prison guard's family. The prison guard was so impressed with the wisdom of Valentine, it was hard for him to treat him truly like a prisoner. And Valentine had great favor with most of the guard while he was in prison. Today, our note writing on Valentine's Day is traced back to Valentine's notes that he was writing to believers or people who were chasing after knowledge of God. And what he was doing in those notes originally was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ with them. In fact, the very last note he wrote before he was killed was a full-out gospel presentation to the jailkeeper's daughter. Remember to cling to Jesus. Keep that in mind as you write your Valentine's notes to many of your friends and family what this is supposed to be about. Eventually, Valentine was brought before Emperor Claudius, and Claudius offered him a full pardon. He said, Valentine, if you will just uh, reject the God that you say you serve and serve the Roman gods, you will be fully pardoned. Valentine got on his knees, prayed to Jesus, said, I refuse to reject Jesus, and then offered Emperor Claudius that if he would repent of his sins and trust in Jesus, that he could have the new birth promised by Jesus Christ himself. Claudius was so angry in that moment that he had Valentine killed on that very day. When Christians are living in largely pagan societies with largely pagan value systems, they must be keenly aware when and where, as a follower who's attempting to be obedient to their king, King Jesus, where they've got to draw a line in the sand. It's difficult. Much of the society that Valentine was living in was not Christian. It was pagan. It had a pagan value system. 
And he had to figure out, how do I do this well? Where do, I, where do I live freely in this pagan society? And then where do I begin marrying people in quiet, in secret, and directly disobey the values of this pagan system I'm living in? Today we continue into our sermon series in the book of Daniel, and we get to a very similar passage to what Valentine experienced. Daniel, if you recall from last week, was a prophet in the Old Testament. We're talking around 600 years before the life of Jesus Christ. And Daniel was uh, exile from his home in Jerusalem. Daniel was actually a great descendant of King David. And so he was considered nobility in Israel and in Jerusalem at the time. And what Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, what he did is he took out of Israel a wave of exiles. He said, come with me, let's go to Babylon. And, and they began this enculturization program. He took the elites of Israel, brought them into the household of Nebuchadnezzar himself and said, look, I'm going to inundate you with Babylonian culture. Daniel was part of this elite crew because he was a great, great grandson of King David. I'm gonna inundate you with Babylonian culture. I'm gonna feed you our food. I'm gonna give you new Babylonian names. I'm gonna give you a good pagan Babylonian education in our best university systems. And the hope was that as he brought men like Daniel from all these different nations that he was conquering around the globe, eventually they would immerse themselves and become Babylonian. And then he would send them back to their nations where they came from and effectually make those nations lose their cultural uniqueness and just immerse themselves in Babylon culture. So Daniel finds himself in this cultural immersion program where he's got to determine, where do I go along with this? Where do I draw a line in the sand? Where do I say I can't go beyond this? Interesting highlights about Daniel. Now, some of this is not fully for certain, but Daniel's boss was the chief eunuch. What does that mean Daniel was? Right? It means that he had been castrated, more than likely, when he came to serve uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's house. Daniel's in his teenage years, okay? I want you to just consider the weight of what happened to Daniel. Teenage, elite in Israel, incredibly wise, taken from his parents, brought into a cultural immersion program, more than likely castrated, also, the chief eunuch, do you know what he was in charge of? The harem. So where's Daniel serving? Right? So, right? So Daniel, teenage boy, okay, working more than likely in a harem. That's not for certain from the text, but you can kind of read that, knowing history. Castrated. He's got to go about this life that has nothing to do with the God of the Bible that he serves. Everything about his day-to-day -day life has nothing, to, and he's around temptation constantly. And we see this young man straining to obey his king. Oh, what hope do we have when we read the life of Daniel? Every Christian must determine between them and God where they draw the line in the sand. Let's read the entire text today. It's uh, from verses 8 through the end of the chapter. It reads like this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. 
Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us just be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the, the youths who eat all the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he, the chief of the eunuchs, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon. And the king spoke with them. And among all of those who were in the cultural immersion program, none was found like Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The passage begins with Daniel resolving in his heart not to eat the food or drink the wine from the king's table. Now the word resolve in his heart, what that has, it has a connotation in the original Hebrew language of, of meaning making oneself ceremonially unclean. He wanted to make sure that he would not make himself in a way that would break Jewish kosher food laws becoming ceremonially unclean. Now, what does that mean? Daniel lived in the days of the Old Testament underneath the Old Testament covenantal law. Underneath those laws, there were a number of laws that separated Jews from other people so they could participate in the sacrificial system. One of those was what foods they could and couldn't eat. Particularly, some of those laws did not allow them and forbid them to eat pork of any kind. Now, in, in that day, it wasn't only eating the pork, but it was making sure that the way that the food was prepared was not prepared in such a way that it came in contact with the grease of the pork that was being cooked in the kitchen. In other words, if Daniel was sitting at the table and he ate some fried asparagus from King, from King Nebuchadnezzar's kitchen, he didn't know if it had been cooked in the bacon grease. So he has to make a decision. <laughs> How am I gonna do this? He's already taken the new name, the Babylonian name. He's already getting the new, you know, university education. But here comes God's law. It wasn't sin for Daniel to get an education in a pagan land. It didn't particularly break a specific law. It wasn't sin for him to go by a new name. It didn't particularly break a law. It was sin for him to break kosher food laws. It's interesting, it's not only the sinful nature of this, though, because Daniel restrained himself not only from the food, from the meat, but also from the wine. And there was no direct forbidding, at least in general, for most people from drinking wine under the Old Covenant. In fact, there were a number of times when they were told to celebrate with wine, unless you were taking a particular vow of some kind. And so it wasn't just the law, the law was part of it, but there was also this identity factor. It was almost a little bit like a fast, it was, I'm going to restrain myself from indulging in the pleasures of the Babylonian food and table, which it would have been great. It probably was the best buffet in the entire world at the time. I'm going to restrain myself from fully enjoying this in order to have some sense of the holiness of who I am at my identity level. So it was a sort of fast as well as making sure he didn't break kosher food laws. 
Notice Daniel's first move once he decided in his heart not to participate in sin. What did he do? He graciously and winsomely spoke to his boss and requested if he could be allowed to not eat of the meat from the table. What did he not do? His first move was not to flip tables. His first move was not to stage a protest. It was not to get on Twitter and hashtag government tyranny. That was not his first move. The first thing he did was he spoke winsomely to his boss. And then look at this text. Verse nine says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion. What happens in the text is not just that Daniel cajoled a way to get through the circumstances. He didn't just scheme a way through what was going on. Daniel served a sovereign God who was over all circumstances, and he knew that. And the text is very clear that the way Daniel navigates this has nothing to do with Daniel's persuasive ability and everything to do with the God who's sovereign over his circumstances. Daniel trusts in the Lord. And the God we serve is a God who's in the business of opening doors. The God we serve is in the business of changing people's hearts, of changing people's opinions, and of paving the way for faithful Christians who are attempting to be faithfully, prayerfully obedient to the text of Scripture to find a way forward in circumstances that most people would just throw their hands in the air and say, it's not that big a deal. Daniel's boss makes a really good point. He responds to Daniel, look, Daniel, I I like you, I appreciate you, but here's the catch. My life is on the line. As the chief eunuch in charge of this operation, this enculturization program, if I don't give you all the food and you get scrawny and look sick, it's not just you that gets scrawny and looks sick, it's me that gets my head cut off for allowing you not to go with the program. Right? Daniel 1.10, the, the chief eunuch says to Daniel, you would endanger my head with the king. So again, Daniel very wise, very cunning at this point, comes up with a plan. Again, he doesn't flip tables yet. He, he got a res- his first response. He goes back to the drawing board. He prays, and he comes back with another plan. He says, look, test us for 10 days. Here's what we're gonna do. 10 days, Nebuchadnezzar's not looking at us in 10 days, okay? We got like a year or so before that happens. Take 10 days. Let us not eat the food or drink the wine that you think we need. And if in 10 days we look scrawny and unfit, If we look like something's wrong with us, then let's talk at that point. But if we look just as good as everybody else and we look healthy, no one's gonna take your head, chief of the eunuchs. Daniel comes up with this plan, Daniel 1.15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they, Daniel and his three buddies, were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, that's a compliment, than all the youths who ate the king's food. You see how God honors Daniel's desire? Daniel's got this desire, he's in his heart, He's looking at what's going on around him. He's trying to draw a line in the sand and trying to figure out, how do I navigate this pagan Babylon I'm living in? And then he sees something that Babylon's asking him to do that is a direct contradiction to God's law. And he says, line. Okay, now, there's my line. Now, how do I operate? And how do I do this really well as a follower of God? And, and, he, and he trusts God. And then God makes a way for Daniel to be faithful and obedient to his law and to continue to move forward. See, when I look around at Christians living in our own Babylon, and we'll get to that, in our pagan society that we're living in with their pagan value system, most of us have not really learned the lesson of drawing a line in the sand at all. We haven't even contemplated it. And we do one of three things. Some folks like to 
pretend they're chameleons. The Christian responsibility in a pagan Babylon is to be a chameleon. It's to just try to blend in. The chameleon says, you know, this is not the place to draw the line, right? Keep in mind, it talks about others who were there from Jerusalem. There were other guys from Jerusalem besides Daniel and his three friends who they were not coming up with this plan. And what were those people saying? They were just saying, look, of all the laws that we're gonna hold the line on, Daniel, let's not get picky here. The food looks pretty good anyways, <laughs> right? This one we can let go. Chameleons say, I know it's breaking the word just a little bit, but let's just blend in, not the place to draw the line. Other people are fighters. And the fighters are those that people say pretty much every time, lines crossed, let's fight. <laughs> right? Lines crossed, let's fight. And immediately, you're off and running, and there's a fight picked, and you basically burn bridges everywhere you go. And then there's the third type, and the third type of people are pretty much clueless that they're living in Babylon at all. And Christians that fall into this category are living in Babylon saying, Babylon's pretty great. <laughs> you seen the food I get to eat while I'm here? You seen the concerts that I get to go to? You seen the systems I get to participate in? The movies I get to watch? Right? So, so they're, they're just saying, what, what's the line? And there's no differentiation about what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life from making the Babylonian God Lord of your life. Look at verses 17 through 21. It's remarkable how this text ends. Daniel grows in such favor with his three friends in wisdom. He took this chance. I'm drawing a line in the sand, and it pays off. Not only does he not have to break God's law, but he ends up excelling in rank in the workplace because everyone looks on this man and sees not only a man of conviction, but a man of great wisdom. It says that his wisdom is 10 times more than all the people that are supposed to be the wise men of Babylon. Keep in mind, we're not at this part yet, but later on, the great pagan king Nebuchadnezzar will worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Do you know why? Because Daniel was next to him. So what's, what's God doing? Daniel's paving way for Daniel to work through this broken pagan Babylonian system in order for him to be present for the most powerful man in the world to accept and believe in the God of the Bible. Pretty remarkable. Now, let's look at us for a little bit. What does this mean for us, and how do we apply this well? Like Daniel, we are living in Babylon. The name of the city we live in is not Babylon. That was the name of the city Babylon that Daniel was living in. The name of our city is Chicago. But that which made Babylon Babylon is that which makes Chicago also Babylon. All through the New Testament, the New Testament authors oftentimes use the term Babylon, especially in the book of Revelation, to refer to government and institutional systems that are over humanity and over civilizations and over society that are running contrary to the law of God. Babylon is a conceptual idea for any government or any system that is pagan and not theocentric, God-centered in their value system. We're living in a society like Babylon that has constructed strange gods to worship, not Christian gods, different gods to worship. And while the gods that they worship might not look like gold statues and idols that might have been present in Nebuchadnezzar's day and age, though sometimes they do, if you're looking in the right places in this city, they're gods nonetheless, and they demand our worship. And the gods that Chicago serves and the gods that Chicago elevates to the centerpieces of society 
Out of those gods flow value systems and ethical systems and systems of morality and and how we live our life and how we lead our marriages and how we raise our children and how we educate ourselves and how we educate our children and what decisions we make. It all flows out of the gods that Babylon worships. It's part and parcel. You you can never separate an ethical system from the god over the ethical system, even when the the god is... uh, secular God, like the God of success or the God of money or the God of the state, right? All from those gods flows the ethical systems that Christians are being asked to enculturate themselves into. And so like Daniel, we have to say, okay, where can I live in Chicago and participate and just be a part of this, be a citizen? And where do I need to draw a line in the sand? Joseph Boot uh, who runs an institute up in Canada, fascinating author, uh, called the Ezra Institute, writes this, how should Christians relate to an increasingly de-Christianized public square where people are becoming either ignorant of or hostile towards the worldview of the Bible? What are Christians to do when the institutional churches, the institutional church is marginalized? The exclusive claims of the gospel are viewed as bigotry and the moral law in scripture seen as repressive and intolerant. Well, from Daniel, we actually can learn a lot of what to do in that situation, can't we? How about we draw four principles? Principle number one, recognize that Babylon is not neutral. Principle number one, Babylon is not neutral. This is a vital principle that will help you understand and make sure that you are not being the clueless person who doesn't understand what a line is or that lines need to be drawn. Many Christians and non-Christians alike tend to think that Chicago, that our modern secular culture we're living in, is morally and ethically neutral. They believe that the laws that are being passed from government and the ideas that are being pushed on our children in our schools and the restrictions that are being placed on our institutions and what can and cannot be said of who gets canceled and who doesn't get canceled of the news that we consume and the angle that that news is reported from, that all of these are just neutral, that society at large is some uh, not positive nor negative, uh, neutral place where everything just kind of is even. But that's not the case. Babylon is directly opposed to the God of the Bible at pretty much every turn. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus as your Lord. It's to live with the ultimate submission to God's authority in your life, not to Babylon's. Let's consider some of Jesus' words on this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Some of these are pretty harsh, but let's walk through them. Matthew 12, 30. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other other words, there's no such thing as spiritual Switzerland. (laughs) There's no neutral zone. If you are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus, according to Jesus, you are opposed to Jesus. There's no middle gray area where you kind of are in neutral land and just sitting on the bench. You're either underneath the lordship of Christ or you're opposed to the lordship of Christ. That's it. And even when you make a decision that you don't want to make a decision, by default, that plates you in opposition to Jesus Christ. There's only two positions. Jesus goes on, Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house in the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and, the beat, and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. 
The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew against it and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Look at Jesus in that, in that text. He says, if you build your life on what? On my word. If you build your life on my word, you will sustain. You will make sure that your life is sturdy, that it won't fall apart. If you fail to build your life on my word. So if you build your life on the modern ideas of secularism, if you build your life on anything but the authority of God's word, it will fall apart and it will crumble. It won't work. The, the Christian is the person that is not attempting to build their life on the word of God and then at the same time over here, all the good ideas that are flowing out of secular society. That's not how it works. We build our life firmly on the word of God. And then we interpret every idea through the lens of scripture. So when we have a new idea about what the state ought to be, we're looking in the text and we're saying, what does this say about human government? And we learn a lot. We preach two whole sermons on what the role of government is. And it's a biblical idea. And there's biblical confines of what government ought to be and what government ought not to be. We build everything on the word of God in order to be wise. John chapter 14, verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Daniel had this place he had to walk where he had to determine, am I truly going to believe that God alone reigns supreme? Or am I gonna take just enough of God to feel like I'm still Jewish, which was the Old Testament religion of following God, to feel like I'm still a follower of God, but really get baptized in Babylonian pagan idolatry. Babylon's not neutral. Babylon is opposed to God. Principle number two, God's word is our standard. God's word is our standard. Here we answer the question, how do we know when to draw the line in the sand? When do we draw the line in the sand? Remember, Daniel was willing to bend in a lot of places. He was willing to go with the flow in a certain regard. His mind was underneath God, but he realized there were some things he, that, that were just preferences. He didn't want to do them this way, but it didn't necessarily break God's word. And he was willing to bend a little bit in order to do that. Daniel was willing to bend when it came to his education. Here's what this means. It's not necessarily sin to get an education from a Big Ten school, Right? It's not necessarily sin if you get an education in a non-directly Christian school. It's not necessarily sin. It takes a lot of wisdom to do that well as a Christian because you have to take all of Babylonian, Babylon ideas, filter them through the word of God, toss out what is not accurate, and then reinterpret what is true through the lens of God. That's hard. It's like two educations in one. But that's what Christians do, and that's what faithful parents train their Christian kids to do when they get to the university system, to make sure that they're learning how to filter properly through the word of God, right? It's not necessarily sin to be a citizen of Chicago. It's not sin to go to the libraries. It's not sin to go to the movies, necessarily. It's not sin to do the things that, what it means to be in this society, but at some point, we have to weigh where does the line get drawn and what are they asking me to do that directly contradicts God's standard and what is just my preference? In order to apply this principle properly, you've got to know God's word well, right? Because if you're gonna say the line gets drawn at the word of God, when it directly is asking me to do something that is ungodly to the word, that's my line. In order to be able to do that well, you've gotta know God's word because the reality is if you don't know God's word, then just maybe you've got a lot of areas in your life 
that you actually are walking in sin because you've borrowed from Babylon way too much. And then what happens is you have to have seasons of confession, like what we just did, where you come back to God, you say, Lord, you revealed some stuff to me, and that was more Babylon than it was the God of the Bible, and now I confess it and I repent of that, and I wanna change. Let me give you a clear example, one that's a little uh, sensitive. But this has come to my attention many times over the last five years. My guess is a number of you have already experienced this situation, and I, I wanna equip you because it'll probably happen much more in the future, either with this topic or with similar topics. One clear example of this plays out in the office spaces in Chicago. Over the last nine years, since I, eight years since I've been a pastor, um, I've had a number of folks come to me and say, hey, look, my boss is asking everybody in the office to affirm a particular Babylonian sexual ethic, right? So they want us to affirm the LGBTQIA plus narrative, okay? Now, to the LGBTQIA plus community, the Christian's response is always, we want you to know the joy of what it means to understand sin in all of its fullness and grace in all of its fullness and to align your life, including your sexuality, whatever your sexual preference is, underneath what God says sexuality ought to be. And the homosexual life is not what God says sexuality ought to be. Marriage between one man and one woman for life, right? And so now we're in Babylon and we're being asked to sign affirmating statements about this particular subject. And if you don't sign it, one of two things happens. You're either ostracized in your office or you're fired. What do Christians do? Well, that's a very Daniel situation, isn't it? We've already taken the job. We're working. We're trying to be good citizens. But now we come to a place where what we're being asked to do directly contradicts and what I possibly say misrepresents the Christian heart. Line gets drawn in the sand. You can't do it. And, and the cost is, increasingly, that you will face ostracization in your office and or firing from your office. But remember Jesus said in Luke 14, 28, make sure you count the cost before you choose to follow me. Something our brothers and sisters around the globe know very well. I had about four different examples picked that I could have shared with you, and I picked that one because I think it's kind of a norm at this point in many of our offices across the city. And this is something we have to navigate. The text here is very, very honest. If we're going to live in pagan cultures, we need to be able to winsomely enter in and be a part of the community, shop at the grocery stores, build businesses, get married, raise families, all the stuff that you do when you're living as a human and do it joyfully while drawing lines in the sand. Jesus is my Lord. And there's lines I can't cross when it comes to the word of God. The Christian's willing to live in Babylon, to walk the streets of Babylon, to shop the stores of Babylon, to buy homes in Babylon. It's not sin to live in Babylon. But when Babylon asks you to normalize sin, to celebrate sin, to teach sin to your children, we resist. The line gets drawn in the sand. As Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said, here I stand, I can do no other. Principle number three, attempt reform winsomely where possible. Attempt reform winsomely where possible. There's something about the seeds of America, isn't there, that just has rebellion built into the blood. 
Something about this nation, and, and honestly, you know, we, we don't really realize this. You don't know the water you're swimming in when you're swimming in it, but other nations look in on us, and, and they see this about our culture, and it's easily recognizable to other nations, okay? There's something about America that just breeds rebellion. That's what the American Revolution was, and it kind of got built in, this kind of scrappy fighter mentality. That's what America is, and all of us have a little bit of that in us, and sometimes we bring that into our Christian faith, and when we bring that into our Christian faith as a first move, uh, what's happening is that we're actually borrowing more from America's value system than from the biblical value system. I watch these fights, th th this line getting played out online all the time. If, you follow, if you're online on Twitter or you're just watching cultural conversations, more often than not, the way this, the, the, the line gets drawn in the sand is that steps one, two, three, four, and five of diplomacy all get thrown out the window and scrappy Americans just jump straight into a fight. I watch it, and I'm looking at Christians and the way they're behaving online, and I'm saying, you guys, look at Daniel here. Daniel could have flipped tables. He could have, you know, started a food fight, <laughs> but he didn't. He respectfully went to his boss. He prayed fervently, and he said, how do I do this in a godly way that's respectful and isn't gonna intentionally burn every bridge? And then, rather than cajoling his way forward, he trusted that God was big enough to make a way. And what happened? God made a way. I have found very regularly, very regularly, that when Christians follow Daniel's example, and when they get between a rock and a hard place of how are they gonna honor God in this situation, and they bow and lay their hands open like this and say, Jesus, please, Make a way for me to honor you that does not destroy this relationship. Most of the time, God provides a supernatural way. Not always. Sometimes relationships get burned. But honestly, I found if that's your posture, most of the time, God makes a way. I've literally watched that happen more in the last year and a half over things with COVID-19 and relationships and all. I've watched that play out so many times. More often than not, God makes a way. He makes a way. We have to make sure that we don't jump to fighting first, but we take Daniel's advice and reform winsomely. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Christians are smart. They, they're, they're able to discern the situation and, and be wise. Wise as serpents. That means cunning, but at the same time, prayer-filled, not seeking to burn bridges. Principle number four. When all else fails, courageously make your stand. When all else fails, courageously make your stand. Daniel's winsomeness won the day because he had a big God who made a way and he had earned a lot of relational capital with his boss. His plan worked. When others just ate the food, Daniel trusted God to make a way forward that would honor God's laws and God provided. Many times that will be the case. Sometimes it won't. And Daniel actually is a great example of that. In a few chapters, in a few weeks here, we're gonna study the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And what happened? Another law got passed, just like in Valentine's Day. This time the law said, you can pray to nobody but Nebuchadnezzar. Ooh. Well, that's not gonna work. <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't gonna work. So what did Daniel do? Listen to what he did. Daniel 6.10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that's the new law was put in place, he went to his house 
where he had window, this is great, where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. Okay, so just so you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to pray with your windows open facing Jerusalem. That's not a law Daniel had to do. He opened the windows, and he made sure that anyone who was watching knew he was praying to the God of the Bible, because that's where he stood, and the line was drawn in the sand. Daniel courageously drew his line in the sand, and he was fed to the lions. And God protected him in the lion's den. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. What you need to know at this point is the aim of the Christian is to be like Daniel. You're wise. You love God. You honor God. You're learning God's word. You're studying his word. You're doing it in community. You're, you're understanding that we do live in a pagan society, in a, Babylon, a Babylonian culture that has an ethical system that is directly in opposition to the God of the Bible, but we're trying to do this winsomely. We're doing it wisely, and we learn from each other. That's one of the reasons when we pray every Sunday, every Sunday I ask the same question. We had 25 people praying this morning, and you all should be there. Our prayer is that the entire hallway would get filled from 8.15 to 8.45 with faithful prayer warriors praying. But every Sunday, I ask the same question. What has God been speaking to you? What has he laid on your heart this week? Why? Because I need to hear it from you. I need to learn. God's speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit to you, giving new wisdom, giving revelation, giving knowledge, giving words, giving affirmation, giving encouragement, because I'll tell you what, Some days it's really exhausting living in Babylon. And some days the easy thing to do is to pick up and move to a slightly less Babylonian culture. But let's be honest, that's only gonna work for a short bit of time. Right? Right? The ship is sailing, and unless God, and I believe he can do this, brings a great revival, the ship is going in a particular direction. And so that might buy you a bit of time, but it doesn't buy you that much time. Rather than moving, what do you say? We dig in and do this together and pray fervently to the God who is over all things that he would provide wisdom and winsomeness and ways to move forward that honor the scriptures, that lean in on each other, and that empowered by the Holy Spirit, learn from each other, pick each other up when we get fired, employ each other, and make sure that we get this thing done. See, Christianity paves new culture. It's culture-making when something's not working, which, by the way, it's not working, the, 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 um, the Babylonian castles of foolishness they've built, it all falls down on itself eventually. It's, you, it doesn't work. It's contradictory nation building. It, it, it's, it's foolishness. It will not stand eventually. And when it falls, when it doesn't work, what's needed is for a group of people who have been doing it right the whole way to say, look, Come see what Jesus has been building the whole time. It's strong. Come be a part of this. We're watching right now as bizarre things are happening in democratic nations around the globe. I'm push- Look, I'm going to go here today, and I know this is uncomfortable, but I have to go here because it's the real world. And my job is to be a pastor who, like in Ezekiel, is a watchman. Ezekiel chapter three and 33, God says to Ezekiel, if you're a watchman and you don't give warning to the people that I put you to give warning to, I hold that on your head, Ezekiel. So now I'm a watchman and I'm letting you know. I'm looking around at what have historically been democratic nations that are doing things that are unbelievably Babylonian in nature. Let me give you two examples. 
Well, number one, in Canada. In Canada, they recently passed the C4 bill. And the C4 bill makes it illegal to hold to a biblical worldview on the topic of sexuality. If a person is going through gender uh, dysphoria, if a person's going through gender dysphoria, meaning they were born a particular gender, and they're wondering, am I supposed to be another gender? Now, if a pastor, if they come to a pastor and that pastor says anything about what the Bible says on this topic or tries to help them in any way from a biblical worldview, not only can you be fined, but you can be put in prison for years. Even if you give just a resource out that hints that there is a biblical perspective on the topic. That's the actual world. In Australia right now, we could look at Australia. Australia has openly banned basic human rights in the name of combating COVID right now. Openly banned basic human rights. You, you, it's, it, depending on where you are, you can't go outside. You, you, they've banned how many minutes you can get exercise outside. I get it. COVID needs to be fought. I understand. But there are basic human rights that this is exceeding what the Bible says about what is government authority and where that authority comes from. And we know this. This is not questionable. Like, these are, these are simple studies in what, in what the Bible says on government authority and, and what it means to be a government and what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. My aim is not to be an alarmist. It's to say, look, okay, here we are. And it's increasingly seeming like Babylon is growing in their scope. So how do we do this winsomely? Let me show you how they did it in Canada. In Canada, when the C4 bill was being developed, it was phenomenal. All through the whole process, because you know when laws are passed, there's, you know, there's a long process for a law to get turned from a bill to the law of the land. Christians were engaged at every point. You should see them. You should see the speeches they gave. Winsome, clear, educated, knowledgeable. Christians, pastors speaking into this winsomely, trying to write letters, trying to bring people into the conversation, all across the way, being just like Daniel. Can we talk about this? That's, that law's not gonna work, right? And then the law got passed. <laughs> and what did the pastors in Canada do? I'll tell you what they did. Two months ago, right after the law was, built, was, was written, many pastors in Canada openly opened the windows of their churches and preached a full sermon on the goodness and the joy and the rightness of the biblical vision on sexuality. And they said, what are you gonna do about it? Courageously made their stand. I'm giving you these examples so you see what this looks like because we're increasingly in a society where we need to learn how to draw a line in the sand. It won't always be that big and grand. But your responsibility as a Christian is to look to God and say, God, I love you and I cherish you and I wanna honor you with whatever you give me. I wanna raise devout kids who know and love Jesus and are not swayed by the lies of the society around me. I wanna to go to work and, and I wanna be the best worker so that my boss, even if he's the chief for the eunuchs and even if it's in a job that I don't particularly wanna be doing, Daniel, even if it's that job, I wanna do it in such a way that my boss looks at me and says, I can't argue with you. Like, you're the best worker I have. I need to promote you. I need to give you more responsibility because you're just good and, and you have a lot of wisdom to learn from. Right? And I want to raise a group of Christians here in this church that are filled with Holy Spirit conviction and courage to know that one day when the line comes to draw the line in the sand, it's okay. That's normal. You come in a long line of saints who have already drawn the line in the sand and paved the way for you. God gets the glory no matter what the cost is. There's a long road ahead of us. Praise God we get to do it in community, right? Let's pray.
Father, a bit of a different message today in the sense of hitting on some common modern themes that aren't always spoken of from the pulpit. God, I pray that the truth that is of you from your scriptures would be applied meaningfully in the real circumstances we're living in. I pray for us that we would be faithful. I pray for us that we would be a church that's courageous and wise. I pray that we would honor your word because you're good and because you saved us by the cross. None of us belong here. It's only by grace we've been saved. Jesus shedding his blood for us on the cross. We can't muster enough courage on our own, God. It's only when you infuse that into us by the power of the Spirit. Give us wisdom in these days. We need it, Lord. We need you. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.